All right, if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 22. When we left off last week in our study of the life of David, he had found residence in a cave. His life had been upended. He, was, he had begun his flight from King Saul, and in the process he had lost his job as Saul's musician, as Saul's military coordinator, as someone who was part of the royal court, if you will. He had lost his wife and therefore his standing in the royal family. He had lost his mentor, Samuel, and he had lost his best friend, Jonathan. On top of all that, he had retreated into Philistine territory and to keep himself alive, he had to lose his self-respect. And so you, you look at David's life, and he is on this downward spiral as Saul has made him a fugitive of the state, and life couldn't get any worse. And now he finds out that he's got to live in a cave. So that's where 1 Samuel chapter 22 begins. And for the next two chapters, all you read about is David on the run. David is fleeing Saul and having to find various locations to move and relocate to time and time again. And it's in that cave of Adullam that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 22 and verse 1 that David's family will gather to him because guess what? Now that he's a fugitive of the, of the state, guess who's not safe anymore? It's not safe for his parents probably not even for most of his brothers, even though they were soldiers in Saul's army. And so they retreat to him, gather with him at the cave of Adullam. And then in, in verse 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 22, we're also informed that everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to David, and he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So by the end of the third verse of 1 Samuel chapter 22, David's in a cave, his family has come to him, and he's got 400 people with him. But David didn't stay in the cave too long. Between 1 Samuel chapter 22 and 1 Samuel chapter 24, David will have to relocate six times. And on the screen, you can see a map. That is a map of the southern part of Judea. And you can see the Dead Sea on the uh, right side of the map as a, a point of reference with the Jordan River uh, to the north of it. And I want to show you David's movements. The star on the screen currently uh, uh, shows where the cave of Adullam most likely was. And these are going to be the best scholarly um, uh, ideas of where these locations were. Some of them unknown, some of them known. But from here, if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 22, uh, verses 3 through 4, you'll read that David left the cave of Adullam and went from there to Mizpah of Moab. He went outside of the, the Israelite territory again. He went into the land of the Moabites. And for what reason? He met with the king of Moab and, and begged the king to let his father and mother stay in Moab. Now, why do you think David chose to take his family to Moab? Anyone have a guess? 
because he is more than just related. He's part Moabite, technically speaking, from our genetical perspective. Not from a Jewish genealogical perspective, but from a, a genetic perspective. Because if you look at his lineage, it goes back through who? Ruth, who was a Moabitess. In fact, I think Ruth would have been his grandmother or great-great-great-grandmother, I think. One of the, which one was it? Great-grandmother? So he's not that far removed. And so since he's got this, uh, his father Jesse, Ruth would have been his, Jesse's grandmother, I believe. And therefore, that's not very many generations removed. In fact, Jesse might still even be known to some people in Moab. So that's why he goes there and uh, sets up his parents for safety outside of Saul's territorial reign. So he begs for them to be able to stay there, and he, you look at verse 4 of 1 Samuel 22, and he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, we don't know exactly where, what the stronghold is, but it'll get mentioned like three times in this section of text. Uh, in this particular instance, it might be different locations. It might be the same location. This one, most scholars think, could be actually within the territory of Moab because the very next verse, a prophet named Gad who is among David's entourage is going to have to tell him, hey, it's time to get back into Judah. And so after spending some time there in Moab, David, and maybe without his parents at this point, but David returns into the territory of Judah and finds himself residing in the forest of Hereth. Not too far from that cave, but in a wilderness area again, he finds himself residing in southern Judah. Then from there, he has to go to the city of Keilah because he finds out that, oh, they're being attacked by the Philistines and nobody's coming to help. So, so he consults with the Lord and receives direction to go help save this city. So he and his merry men of 400 number go and save the city of Keilah. But then Saul finds out that he's in Keilah. And so Saul starts marching towards Keilah. And David consults with the Lord again finds out, hey, I better not stay here or I'm going to be captured. So he leaves there, and from there he goes and settles into the wilderness of Ziph. While in the wilderness of Ziph, the Ziphites decide they want to side with Saul, and they communicate with Saul and tell Saul, hey, David's down here, why don't you come get him? So David has to relocate again to the wilderness of Maon. From there... Or while there, I should say, Saul and his little army show up and they come very close to capturing David. God intervenes by uh, providentially sending a Philistine attack that Saul has to leave his pursuit of David and go take care of those Philistines. And that's how David escaped at the last moment in this particular instance. And so from that wilderness of Maon, he then moves over to Engedi, a little oasis not far from the Dead Sea. And it's while he's here in Engedi that something unique is going to happen, the next significant event in his life that we want to spend time with tonight. 
because Saul's pursuit of David is going to reach a climax in 1 Samuel chapter 25 inside a cave at En Gedi. But before we dive into that story, I want to draw your attention to instructions we receive in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. Read along with me these instructions that we have been given. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I, I want those instructions to resonate with you as we go through this account tonight. Because these instructions condemn retaliation, they elevate reconciliation, and they call on us to both trust in and wait on the Lord. And so with these instructions in mind, let's examine the first episode in David's life when he had the opportunity to retaliate against Saul and see how he was able to reject retaliation. So if you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 24, Let's read the first three verses for just a moment. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the, in the innermost parts of the cave. Some of you are already familiar with this story and know how it's going to play out. And what I want you to consider tonight is how David managed in this unique scenario not to seek retaliation. How it is that David was able to control himself and not pursue revenge. Because I know there have been times in your life you wanted to retaliate. You wanted revenge. And for some of us in here, we've gotten it. We not only wanted it, we achieved it. But remember those instructions in Romans chapter 12? They are anti-retaliation instructions. And so we're going to look at the man after God's own heart tonight and consider how it is he conquered that desire to retaliate. And the first thing I notice as we study this section of text is that David was able to reject retaliation because he sought God's direction before he acted. Now, to explain what I mean, we need to consider King Saul for just a moment. Saul was known, he was once known, for not advancing militarily without God's consent. You remember the occasion that started his downward spiral was when he himself oversaw the uh, sacrifices and offerings before the Lord, even though he wasn't authorized to do so. He cared so much about getting God's consent on his next move that he was willing to disobey God to get it. Totally doesn't make sense. But that's how he operated. He cared about getting God's approval for his next move, 
even though he was going to receive God's disapproval for the way he went about it. So Saul used to care about that, but that's no longer the case because Saul has lost contact with God. As one commentator pointed out, Saul has long since stopped seeking messages from Yahweh and started depending on his own political and strategic decision-making abilities, as well as whatever information he can gather from informants. And because Saul is no longer in communication with God, he misreads David's movements as divine blessings from God. So if you turn back into chapter 23, I mentioned a moment ago that David went to rescue the city of Keilah. And the city of Keilah was this fortified city on the edge of, the, uh, of Israelite territory bordering the Philistines. And Saul thought it was a divine opportunity. In 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 7, Saul learned that David was there in that city, and he concluded in his own mind that God has given David into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. He thinks, oh, David has finally left the wilderness, finally left the caves, finally left, left the forest, and he's in a walled city. All I have to do is go down there and negotiate with the people, and they'll turn him over to me. They're going to hold him like a, they're going to hold him there like it's a prison cell, and all I have to do is go down there and flex my muscles, and they'll turn him over to me. And he's and, and in his mind, God is blessing me by sending David into my hand. When, in actuality, God was not working for Saul's benefit any longer. God was working for David. There's a statement in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 23 where we're told that Saul pursued David every day, but then the same verse goes on to say that God did not give David into Saul's hand. Saul was pursuing David every day. That's why David had to relocate so often. But the text tells us that God was intentionally protecting David. God was divinely protecting David, not Saul. And somewhere along the way, Saul had reached this conclusion. He had determined that as the Lord's anointed, his will had become God's will. That's what I think has happened to Saul. That somewhere along the way, he decided that because he's the one that's anointed, that whatever he wants is ultimately what God wants. Because just one chapter earlier, if you skimmed back to 1 Samuel chapter 22, Saul ordered the execution of all of God's priests from the city of Nob because they assisted David instead of Saul. Saul had reached this point in his hysteria that he had blurred the distinction between God's will and his own. And he had decided that God's priests should be serving his will instead of God's. Saul had reached a point that he's no longer in communication with God. He's no longer seeking God's will or God's directions. Meanwhile, that's all David does. I've had you in 1 Samuel chapter 23, and I want you to notice that four times in that four, 1 Samuel 23, before we get to this cave at En Gedi, four times in 1 Samuel 23, David is going to seek God's guidance, seek God's direction before he makes his next move. In 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 2, David inquired of the Lord as to whether or not he should come to the aid of the city of Keilah, which was being attacked by the Philistines. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 4, David again seeks God's guidance. David inquired of the Lord again to confirm whether or not he should go to Keilah because his, his men, that band of 400 that was with him, wasn't convinced that God had told him to go to Keilah. And then if you skip down to 1 Samuel chapter 23 and you look at verses 10 through 12, you're going to see David twice. Twice ask God to confirm a message. He's going to say, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. Notice, David is consulting with God before he makes his next move, before he acts. And it's interesting. Because David has a pretty good entourage right now. Among that entourage, he has a prophet named Gad. That's the prophet that informed him it's time to leave Moab and go back to Judah. Gad stays with David. Gad communicates messages from the Lord to David. On top of that, when Saul killed those priests back in chapter 22, one of them got away. His name was Abiathar, and he went directly to David, and he joined David's crew. And so now David not only has a prophet in his crew, he's got a priest in his crew, and, the, and Abiathar brought an ephod with him, which was uh, used for communications with God. It, had a, it would have the Urim and Thummim with it, which I still don't fully understand, but it was some sort of way of uh, receiving direction from God. Anyway, he brought the ephod. And so he now has a priest equipped to communicate with God and a prophet equipped to communicate with God. You know what Saul's got? Nothing, because he killed all the priests. And because God had distanced himself from him. And, and, and Samuel won't speak to him anymore. And so David has been intentional. When Abiathar came to him and said, hey, Saul's killed the priest, David's like, well, you're staying with me. I'm taking care of you from now on. David knows, hey, I want people who are on God's side because that's the side I'm on. There's a distinction here between David and Saul because David is constantly concerned with what God's will is and what God's direction is and where God's pointing him. Saul gave up on that a long time ago. And so each time David faced a critical decision, he did not act until God authorized it. And in that cave, an opportunity, in that cave in Engedi, an opportunity will to eliminate King Saul will fall in David's lap. And David won't take it because God didn't authorize it. Now I want you to think about James chapter 4 for just a moment. Verses 13 through 17 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That little section packs so much practical advice into it. But the thing I want you to take away from that is, 
unless the, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. When you're making your plans for the future, don't forget to seek out God's will for those plans. Don't forget to follow God's will regardless of what your plans are because his will is always the right will. David understood that. Saul did not. And which one's called a man after God's own heart? It sure wasn't Saul. So our decision-making should be dictated by what God desires because that is the only way we can be certain that we do the right thing. And so David was able to reject retaliation in this cave because he sought God's direction before he acted. But David was also able to reject retaliation because he did not give in to peer pressure. Peer pressure was one of Saul's major downfalls. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul and his army were preparing to go to war with the Philistines. They were just waiting on Samuel to show up, as I've already mentioned, and, and, and offer those sacrifices to God so that God might bless the battle. When Samuel failed to show up, Saul decided to make the sacrifices himself, even though he was not authorized to do so. And when Samuel confronted Saul over that act of disobedience, the first words out of Saul's mouth were, when I saw the people were scattering from me, he felt the pressure from the people to do something. In this instance, nobody said to Saul, hey, you need to go make those sacrifices, at least not according to the text. Saul was pressured because he saw that he was losing control. And, and the, the, the possibility of losing his support from the people pressured him into doing something disobedient. He was given to peer pressure because he was more concerned with satisfying people than obeying God. Now, we've already read how Saul unwittingly entered this cave in Engedi. To use the bathroom. And he doesn't know that David's in there. So Saul is completely vulnerable at this moment. I imagine, he's got 3,000 men with him. I imagine that they're outside, maybe even down the hill a ways. And he just took a small little security team with him to go up to this cave. And I'm certain that security team is outside the cave. He's got his privacy. They're guarding the entrance so that nobody can come in and attack him while he's in this compromised position. But nobody thought, about the inside of the cave. And so I think it's quite likely that Saul is by himself or at least a good distance away from other people while he is in this position. And it's in this compromised state that we pick up the reading in verse 4 of 1 Samuel chapter 24. The men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. 
did you notice where the idea to do something to Saul came from? It was the men of David who encouraged him to act and even suggested that this was a divinely ordained opportunity. If you look at verse 4, they even claim that this is the fulfillment of a prophecy. What's interesting is that there is no specific prophecy or promise recorded in the Bible related to the words they spoke. Now, they may be offering their own interpretation of the episode of David's anointing back in chapter 16 or of Jonathan's abdication of his rights to rule in chapter 18 or of Jonathan's assertion that David will certainly become king in chapter 23 when he comes to visit David. But regardless of where this so-called prophecy originated, David's men are pressuring him to seize this opportunity for himself. Think about it this way. The men David trusted, the men who chose to be on his side, the men who were willing to fight for him, even die for him, remind him of God's promise of deliverance and encourage him to eliminate the individual who threatened his very existence. Everything they said, everything they said was reasonable. Everything they said was logical. Everything they said was to some degree justifiable. And David was influenced enough by their words that he decided to move forward through the, that cave toward his enemy with some degree of malicious intent. They're pressuring him. And it appears to be working. Maybe as he quietly moved toward Saul with a blade in his hand, he wasn't even sure what he was about to do. Maybe he was mulling over the possibility of assassination. I mean, hasn't he been told the past few years that he was destined to be the next king? Didn't God promise to deliver his enemies into his hands? As he approached King Saul, David probably didn't know exactly what he was going to do. But in the end, all he did was cut off a piece of Saul's robe. But even that bothered his conscience. He said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. He felt guilty after the fact. But why did his conscience bother him? All he did was cut off a piece of cloth. There's two observations we should make. First, his response in verse 6 gives the implication at the very least that he considered doing something malicious. As one commentator said, the fact that he immediately regrets this violation of Saul's robe strongly suggests that his initial motivation was not so high-minded 
and differed only in degree from the more primitive stirrings in his men. His point is that to some degree, when David approached Saul, he was at least thinking about doing something harmful. And that's part of why he would be conscience-stricken. However, it's also been observed that cutting off that piece of cloth is more significant than we might understand. Because one's robe, as a commentator pointed out, one's robe in the ancient Near East often bore symbolic significance. You can go to 2 Kings chapter 9 and see how placing a garment before a newly anointed king could signify one's submission to him. You can go to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15 or 1 Kings chapter 11 and see how the tearing of a garment could symbolize a torn kingdom. And you can go to 1 Samuel chapter 18 where Jonathan removed his robe and gave it to David and see how that removal of a robe and giving it to somebody else symbolized giving up the right to royal succession. So as it was pointed out, it seems likely here that David's cutting of the hem of Saul's garment has enormous symbolic significance, denoting perhaps not only that Saul's hold on the kingdom is over, but that David's has now begun. By affecting the robe of Saul in a detrimental way, it could be viewed as David staking his claim. It could be viewed as David sending a message that this kingdom is no longer yours. Something of that nature, because the garments of the king or of the prince have so much symbolic importance throughout the Old Testament. And so whether David truly had some malicious intent in his heart when he approached King Saul, or he sent a symbolic message against King Saul, it bothered him. And did you notice what David did next after his own conscience is stricken about cutting off a corner of Saul's robe. Verse 7 tells us that he returned to his men and persuaded them not to attack Saul. In other words, David chose to be the persuader instead of the persuaded. Instead of being the one who was pressured to do the wrong thing anymore, David decided to be the one who stood on his convictions and convinced everyone else to do the right thing. And you need to know that God takes succumbing to peer pressure quite seriously. Now, we're adults. Peer pressure is just for middle school students and high school students, right? They're the only ones that ever face peer pressure. My neighbor buying that new car doesn't affect me and my desire to buy a new car. The clothes that that person wears do not have any influence on the clothes that I want to wear. Someone's enjoyment of that new Netflix show or that new uh, television show or that new whatever it is has no bearing on me whatsoever. That post on Facebook, ah, it doesn't affect me at all. I don't ever hit like or share. We don't give in to peer pressure. I've never done something as an adult, because somebody else encouraged me to. That's what we think. 
We might give in to peer pressure more than kids do. God takes it seriously. I want you to notice this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 13. It takes place between verses 6 through 10. And in this passage, the Israelites were instructed to take extraordinary measures to protect themselves from being lured into idolatry by someone they know. Here's an abridged version of that section. If your brother or your son or your daughter or your wife or your friend entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you know what that is? That is an anti-peer pressure policy pertaining to idolatry. And that was a lot of peace. God's saying don't ever let someone pressure you into worshiping someone else. And if they do, you kill them. It doesn't matter if it's your spouse. It doesn't matter if it's a family member. It doesn't matter if it's your best friend or your child. If they try to pressure you into worshiping a different God, you kill them. That is a significant anti-peer pressure policy. And yes, you can go to the New Testament, and you're never going to find a statement specifically about peer pressure in the New Testament. But you will find a passage like Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world. The ultimate goal of peer pressure is conformity. Peer pressure is intended to get you to do something, say something, or think something that is acceptable to the majority, regardless of whether or not it is acceptable to God. So giving in to peer pressure is ultimately a decision to conform rather than to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So really, when you read Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, you're reading an anti-peer pressure policy. And David here, even though he has this moment of weakness where he might consider doing something worse than he did, and even though he did something instead of nothing, he does teach us about handling peer pressure. Ultimately, by cutting off the corner of that robe, he was declaring his innocence. That was the chief objective in the end. Because in a moment, he's going to hold that out and show it to Saul and say, look what I didn't do. Look what I didn't cave into. He's going to actually tell Saul, my men told me to kill you, but I didn't listen to them. This is all I did. I didn't give in to the peer pressure like you did. We need to start seeing peer pressure for what it really is, and we need to look at David and go, hey, we don't have to give in to it either. And so when we look at this particular story, we're also seeing David's ability to reject retaliation because he, he didn't give in to peer pressure. He was also able to reject retaliation because he knew when and how to reconcile. After Saul exited the cave and was a little ways off, maybe 
he and his little security team are walking down the mountain to catch up with the, the rest of the soldiers? Maybe, maybe it's when he's halfway down the mountain or down the road or whatever it is. David emerged. And this is risky on David's part. He's giving up a hiding place. He's giving up a hiding place that was successful. Do you think if Saul ever returned to this particular cave, he didn't send his team in to check things out first? David is taking a risk because he's, he's giving up his location, but this is strategic on his part. He knows that if he can declare his innocence this time, there is nothing Saul can say. And so look with me, beginning in verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between you, me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now I want you to think about how David handles this. David emerges at just the right time and does and says just the right thing to achieve reconciliation. When he comes out of that cave and calls out to the king, David shows tremendous humility. Remember, David already knows he's king pending. He's king and waiting. But yet he emerges and says, my Lord, the king. He even refers to Saul as my father at one point. He uses titles that elevate Saul. Meanwhile, he uses terms that humiliate him. He refers to himself as a dead dog, as a flea. My Lord, the king, dead dog. My father, flea. He knows exactly how to speak to Saul. But also notice the first thing he does is bow down. He doesn't remain standing while he speaks to Saul. He bows his head to the ground. He physically shows Saul that Saul is superior to him because Saul is the current Lord's anointed. He's giving Saul that homage he deserves as his position or in his position. 
What's also interesting to me, if you particularly look at verse 9, David makes sure that the way he approaches this is not by pointing a finger at Saul. You know, when you've got, when some, when you know somebody is your antagonist, somebody is in opposition to you, it's very easy for you to point fingers and say, you did this, you did that, you said this, you said that. I mean, those of you who are married knows how this works. And you know, it always makes things worse. David comes out, and instead of saying, Saul, you said this, Saul, you did that. He accuses unnamed men of initiating Saul's anger towards David. Look again at verse 9. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? He doesn't put the blame on Saul. He puts the blame on the people Saul has listened to. Now, that doesn't make Saul innocent, but it shows David's wisdom in handling the situation. I'm not coming out here and casting blame on you. I am coming out here to get you to see that you're mistaken. If Saul came, I mean, if David came out and started making direct accusations against Saul, what's Saul going to do? Well, if he lived in our time period, immediately he goes defensive. Well, David, you did this. Isn't that our first response when somebody accuses us? Yeah, but you did this. You did the same thing. We throw up a defensive mechanism in some fashion. David has eliminated Saul's defensiveness by showing humility, by showing honor, by not casting blame. And then one commentator said it this way, with the skill of an expert lawyer, David carefully laid out both eyewitness and material evidence to make his case, and then used it to lead Saul to an unavoidable conclusion. D David just points out, hey, you, Saul, you've seen with your own eyes. You are an eyewitness today that I mean you no harm. Because you're alive outside this cave. And to prove it, to, 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 to make sure Saul knows he didn't just happen to come through that cave system after Saul left, he holds up the piece of cloth and says, here's my evidence. Here is 100% irrefutable proof that I mean you no harm. David knew exactly when and how to go about the process of reconciliation. The one last thing I want you to notice about this is that David provides the evidence. David has the right strategy and tact. But most importantly, David appeals to their common association with the Lord. Now, Saul's been distant from for some time. But it was still the Lord who chose Saul, just as the Lord chose David. And so David's appealing to a higher king for his innocence and for Saul's enlightenment. Notice how many times in the second half of this communication from David, he appeals to the Lord. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me, avenge me against you. Skip down to uh, 
uh, verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. He's calling on the Lord. And in so doing, he's reminding Saul of who Saul really answers to, of who David answers to. David reminded Saul of their common association with God by appealing to the Lord. It shows his wisdom on how and when to pursue reconciliation. And reconciliation is achieved. Look at the reading beginning in verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Saul responds penitently. His penitence is evident by his sorrow. He wept. And godly sorrow is associated with repentance in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. His penitence is also evident in his confession of sin. He acknowledges, I have repaid you evil. He acknowledges that he's in the wrong and David is more righteous because David has only done what's good. He acknowledges his sin. And we know in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 that we must confess our sins in order to be forgiven of our sins. So in this moment, we can see Saul repent. And we can see Saul make requests of David. He wants David not to execute his, his offspring, his family. That was the common practice. When you rose to the throne, if you were not a descendant of the previous ruler, you killed everybody from his family so there could be no competition for the throne. So he's asking David, swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me. That's asking David not to kill the rest of his family. And then, he's, then he asks that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. He's requesting that David preserve a link between him and his family. In other words, maybe David won't kill all of his descendants, but he doesn't want David to eliminate his name either. He doesn't want to be forgotten. He wants to be remembered. He still wants to be associated with his family and his descendants. And you know what? David's more than willing to do this. Do you know why? Because David had already made these promises to Jonathan. It really ain't about Saul. It's about Jonathan. And so David agrees because he had already agreed to do that for Jonathan. So Saul repents. And by David's willingness to fulfill these requests, we can see that he forgave. And so David fulfilled the responsibility we read in Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, David has done what was necessary to reconcile with Saul. But here's what I really want you to notice. 
Look at verse 22, the very end of verse 22 in 1 Samuel 24. Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Despite their reconciliation, David did not go home with Saul. He's Saul's son-in-law. He used to be Saul's commander of the military. He used to be Saul's musician. But David doesn't just, oh, Saul, you've repented. I forgive you. Let's go back to normal. David doesn't do that. I think that's significant. Because David, David understood that there's a difference between reconciliation and affiliation. Here's what I mean. Reconciliation is about restoring peace through repentance and forgiveness. That can be accomplished without the two parties maintaining an association or or affiliation with each other moving forward after reconciliation occurs. There are times when reconciliation is the end of a relationship because an ongoing affiliation with the other person is too risky. The Bible does not command us to maintain affiliations after reconciliation. It does command us to live peaceably with all. And sometimes the only way to fulfill that command after reconciliation has happened is to have some relational distance. We don't talk about that. David's decision not to return home with Saul proves to be wise. Because two chapters later, guess what Saul's doing? Trying to kill David again. David understood that, hey, I'm forgiving him and we're reconciled, we're good. But that doesn't mean I can trust him again. That doesn't mean I'm safe with him again. Sometimes we, we blur the lines between reconciling and affiliating. And we assume that because we're reconciled, that means we have to have the same relationship we had before. That's not always the case. Sometimes we need to recognize, all right, we have to, rec- we have to be at peace. We have to reconcile. We have to achieve that. But for our own spiritual safety, we might need to keep our distance. For our own physical safety, we might have to keep our distance. For our own spiritual and mental safety, we might have to create some distance. And that's not wrong in and of itself. If you skip ahead to 1 Samuel chapter 26, this gets reiterated in verse 25. 1 Samuel 26, very similar to 24. Saul chases David again. David and one of his companions goes down into the camp while Saul's asleep. The Lord has caused a deep sleep over David and his whole army. And David goes down there and steals Saul's spear and steals Saul's canteen and takes them back with him. And the next morning when they all awake, David's like, hey, Saul. What happened? Where's your spear? Where's your canteen? I got him. I could have killed you again, but I didn't. So why are you still pursuing me? And then 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 25 says this. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Saul actually, in 1 Samuel 26, asked David to return with him, and David says no. Because David understands we can reconcile I can forgive you, you can repent, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to stay close. Sometimes, sometimes reconciliation 
Let me rephrase that. Reconciliation is expected. But it doesn't mean affiliation has to continue or needs to continue. And David understood that. And the reason I bring this up is because I think sometimes that retaliation, revenge, and hatred is the result of continuing a relationship that no longer needs to continue. That we can, we're expected to reconcile. We're expected to be at peace. We're expected to be peacemakers. But sometimes we keep a relationship going long after it's healthy. Long after it's detrimental to ourselves, to to us. And David gives us an example of someone who knew when to to separate. I want to take you back to Romans chapter 12 now. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Did David live up to this New Testament expectation? Is is anybody comfortable answering that question? Yes, he did. You know, under Mosaic law, which was the law he was under, retaliation was somewhat acceptable. Leviticus 24, 17 through 22, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, and whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am Lord your God. This is the eye for an eye policy. This is the, uh, the retaliation policy of the Old Testament. And to some degree, based on this policy, one could argue that David would be legally justified in retaliating against Saul. But David wasn't just a man who modeled his life after God's laws. He was a man who modeled his life after God's heart. He was living up to New Testament standards before they were ever written down. Because he was holding himself to the standard of God. That's why David was a man after God's own heart. David was living up to New Testament standards before they were ever recorded. And now we have them. And yet we struggle to live up to them. And he did it before they were ever recorded. If you want to be a man or a woman after God's own heart, it's not just about living up to the rules. It's about living up to the standard of him. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Forgive as your father forgave you. Be holy as he is holy. Walk yourself through the New Testament. The expectation isn't that you'll just do the checklist of the do's and don'ts. The expectation is that you'll be like him. And when Jesus went to that cross, he didn't retaliate. He didn't seek revenge. He laid down his life. 
if we want to be like God, hatred, revenge, retaliation, all of those things can't be a part of our making. But when we look at David, and we see this man after God's own heart, we see someone who modeled the right way to deal with being hurt by other people. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of David and the lessons we can learn from it. And hopefully, Lord, we can take something away tonight uh, that will help us better relate to other people and deal with the, the wounds and the injuries that we incur as a result of this fallen world. Help us, Lord, to be people after your heart. And help us, Lord, to reflect you in everything we do. We love you, and it's through the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.